0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Doing pretty well, I'm guessing. Um, it's it's the week before school starts, so I'm probably running around with a chicken, like a chicken with my head cut off.
1: <laughs> I would imagine, yes. <laughs> School's uh, cranking up out in Colorado as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, our our summer interns are gone now and getting ready to start college again.
0: Yeah, I bet that's sad for you, right? No one to get your coffee in the morning, stuff like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, we had some fantastic interns this
0: summer. That's so awesome. It,
1: it was really, really sad to see them go.
0: Yeah, that's always nice to be able to crank out some hardcore summer work with the help of uh, students and then having them, you know, hopefully have a really great experience at the same time.
1: Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so this week we're actually moving on to the next planet in our series, the one that is liked so much we put a ring on it.
0: Oh, oh, oh man, did you just write these down?
1: <laughs> I've got puns for all of them now. Oh, man. <laughs> I
0: quit. This is terrible. <laughs> Oh, that was pretty good, though.
1: (laughs) So obviously we're talking about Saturn, which is not the only planet with rings, but it certainly has the most prominent ones.
0: Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, And this is really exciting because obviously Saturn has captured the imaginations of everybody for so long because it's so pretty and Cassini was there not very long ago and there's beautiful pictures all over the internet but there's also a lot of really great science that came out of that mission and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today
1: yeah well cassini was there not very long ago and quite a while ago because it was a long mission
0: (laughs) that is true yeah (laughs) man you gotta love it and you know we've had all these mess ups that are real expensive but then there's these ones you know like the mars rovers and the cassini that's like well it's still going let's just keep doing science. And yeah, it was there for 13 years, that's amazing.
1: Well this week we're really excited to be talking to Dr. Amanda Hendricks about Saturn and its moons.
0: Hi Amanda, welcome to the show.
2: Hi you guys, I'm really excited to be here, this is fun.
0: Yay!
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Amanda, you you are at the Planetary Science Institute and you're a senior scientist there, we've learned uh, through talking to lots of different people for the system, solar system series, that everybody has a slightly different name for what they do in planetary science. Oh, so right. could you tell us what your name uh, for what you study is <laughs> and how you got there? A little bit about your background.
2: Oh, sure. So I call what I do planetary science, um, as simple as that, really. And But how I got here was kind of a backwards route. I started out in engineering. I actually started out in physics, and then I switched to engineering as a, an undergrad. And this was at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And uh, I was studying aeronautical engineering. And I I knew that I wanted to, you know, somehow study space, but I didn't know exactly uh, what that meant or how to go about doing it. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I kind of wanted to be an astronaut, and I kind of wanted to study planets. Um... But I didn't know how to really get to either, so I just was doing engineering, and that was fine and good. And um, and then I went to grad school after getting a bachelor's, and I went to grad school at CU Boulder, and uh, went into the Aerospace Engineering Sciences Department there. And uh, and so that was good too, and that was more space based. Um, engineering than the aeronautical engineering that I was studying as an undergrad. And so that was good. But the really great thing was that I stumbled upon uh, planetary science. Um, I, you know, It turns out that they had a department at CU Boulder, which I had no idea about because I didn't know what I was doing at the time. <laughs> um, and so that was perfect. So I was able to take classes in planetary science and realize that that was what I wanted to do. And I ended up keeping my PhD in aerospace engineering sciences, Um, but really the uh, focus of my research as a grad student was more in planetary science and also kind of instrument science because I worked a lot as a grad student on the Galileo mission at Saturn, uh, at at Jupiter, sorry, And, um, and the ultraviolet instrument that flew on that spacecraft that was built and operated at CU Boulder And so I kind of worked on calibrating that instrument and uh, using the data to learn about uh, Jupiter's moons. So that's kind of how I got into planetary science and I've continued with it to this day, mostly studying moons in the solar system.
0: I I feel like everyone says that I went backwards and they always come from engineering or physics. And I feel like actually, (laughs) like the people who are just straight geologists the whole time, those are the backwards ones. (laughs) Like, that's what I've learned from this, uh, all these interviews we've been doing.
2: (laughs) Well, I think it's really useful to have an engineering background when you're working on, uh, you know, spacecraft missions, um, you know, and thinking about systems engineering. There's a lot of uh, utility and also having to communicate with engineers on the missions. (laughs) That Um,
0: (laughs) that comes up a lot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like, you have
0: to know how to speak engineer, and it's right. so true, because I can see <laughs> these geologists just being like, make this happen, and right, that's, right. that's not useful.
1: <laughs> so, what are some of the uh, the crossovers between you know, doing instrument design and having, or I guess being able to tailor the instrument design to the science you want to see on these different missions? Are there any uh, aspects in there where you've been able to tweak something that an engineer might not have thought was important
2: well i think what we know now is that um you know you've got a team of engineers and scientists helping to design instruments for the next mission wherever you're going and you've got the scientists coming in and saying what are the questions we're trying to answer uh what kind of experiment do we need to do to answer that question answer that science question and What do we think that the instrument needs to be able to do to run that experiment? And then you've got more kind of instrument engineers coming in and saying, okay, well, then that means that the instrument needs to look like this. And then there might be maybe trades that uh, are done to uh, make the instrument um, as realistic as possible, as you know, and we're always going for low mass, small volume, if at all possible, low power, if at all possible. And uh, also low cost, if if at all possible. <laughs> so we try; we have to meet all of those things and still do the science. Um, so there's a lot of iteration that ends up happening.
0: So it's super easy.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs>
1: but especially working, you know, out past the inner rocky planets, uh, as we've learned, the the power factor really becomes a huge issue.
2: Oh sure, and um, but you know that's another thing, you know, on these missions, we, we, for instance, Juno has got solar power, even though it's out at Jupiter and that works for them, but then they tailor their operations to make that work for them. But on Cassini, we didn't use solar power. We had, um, we had RTGs and, um, and we sometimes had to, um, you know, turn off instruments or go into low power modes in order to accommodate, um, Um, you know, what we wanted to do and the power resources on board. So, um, you know, lots of different things that you can play with to try to do things. The other challenge on Cassini is that, and probably other missions too, is that you've got instruments mounted on there, on the spacecraft, and maybe they're mounted such that, um, you know, you can point an instrument at your target where you want to look, But then the other instruments aren't pointed where they want to look. Um, So you might have to trade um, timing wise. You might have to, you know, say this instrument is prime and we're going to do this kind of science for a little while. And then we'll turn the spacecraft and do the other instrument science for a little while. Um, And that's because we didn't end up having um, a scan platform on the Cassini mission and that would have enabled us to not have to turn the whole spacecraft to point instruments, but you could have just pointed sort of a subset of the, um, of the spacecraft to, to point different instruments. Uh, but again, that was another trade that was made early on, way before I came on board Cassini um, for um, you know, mass and cost purposes. But but I'm just saying that because that's a, another way of accommodating instruments and in science
1: right and I, I imagine something like that Cassini was such a a long running mission that that planning also had to center around what were the what were the propellant costs to do these maneuvers
2: Oh right, right, so we were always keeping track of how much propellant uh, was on the spacecraft and doing estimates of that Um you know, you you can't really, you know, n- ever know exactly for sure, but you do a lot of estimates and modeling. Um, but it really didn't become an issue until much later in the mission. You know, we were at Saturn for 13 years, which is really long. I mean, it was so great. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um and, you know, we had uh, different ways of turning the spacecraft. We could just do attitude control using uh, little gyros. And then we could use, uh, well, we use the main engine to do big burns like at um, uh, SOI, which was Saturn orbit insertion, we did a big burn. And then we, used, we had thrusters that we would use for kind of medium-sized maneuvers. But, the, but um, you know, we had to keep an eye on how much prote- propellant was being used. Um, a lot of w- what was used was during Titan flybys, so tight and uh, close in Saturn flybys when we got in very close to Saturn and we're, but back to Titan, when we came in closer to the atmosphere we might have had to use thrusters to help to uh, control the attitude of the spacecraft because you start getting a little bit of drag by, from the um, atmosphere and torquing your attitude and so you want to be able to keep this spacecraft stable. Um, So, so we used thrusters in those situations and used up some of the propellant and that was decided, you know, by the Titan Working Group to be a good idea and, and, and a good use of that uh, resource.
0: Well, I bet they would say that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Um, So I remember being at the uh, Lunar Planetary Science Conference when the first Cassini pictures were sort of released and how awesome it was being in that room Um, oh yeah i i can't imagine what it felt like having worked on the mission and getting to see them when it came back i mean was it everything you had hoped for
2: oh yeah i mean (laughs) there was such a special mission to work on now are you talking about the very first images that came back or the ones Uh, like the first ones of the end
0: no the very first ones
2: yeah, like Phoebe. So, so ago. really, yes. <laughs> really, in two thousand and four, when we first arrived yep. in the Saturn system mm-hmm. in June of two thousand and four, we that flew by crazy. Phoebe, and that's that little captured moon, uh, mm-hmm. way out far, like something like two hundred and fourteen Saturn radii. Oh, I want to say, that's crazy. Um, orbiting orbiting the wrong way, so it goes around <laughs> the wrong way, and that's a big clue that it was a captured. Um, body. And uh, that was our first targeted flyby of the um, mission. And yeah, that, you know, before we actually got to Phoebe, it, in the images that we had, it just looked like this little gray kind of fuzzy blob. And, you know, when we, I think it was a Saturday or a weekend day uh, when we all gathered at the lab and Sat around and watched these images of Phoebe coming in, and we saw, you know, really sharp craters um, on the walls of the craters. We saw exposed, presumably, fresh water ice because it was very bright and white looking. Um, just a super battered looking body, but really neat. It was such a special time to, you know, each of those first flybys was really exciting to be able to see these bodies up close for the first time.
0: I just thinking about new horizons and you know oh that yeah pixelated thing and what pluto looks <sighs> like
2: now you know Right <laughs> right yeah yeah it's oh. just like you almost can't imagine
0: No exactly and the moons are the only rocks to talk about on Saturn so
2: that's really what I'm interested in anyway so <laughs> Cool <laughs> Well
1: it, it's it's always interesting I don't think a lot of people realize that when you're dealing with you know, space missions—you're operating on a completely different time frame than the rest of the world. Uh, because when I was interning at Johnson, you know, there would be traffic jams at two in the morning when people were coming in for some significant <laughs> sort of orbital event,
2: <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs>
1: or people that were living on Mars time, and all kinds of strange things oh, right. happen when you're working on missions.
2: <laughs> well, on Cassini, well, on Cassini, it was interesting because the one-way light time is like 90 minutes. It varies because uh, Saturn has a pretty eccentric orbit, so it varies, um, but it was about an hour and a half. Um, but, you know, we would, uh, because everything was very complicated and there's, you know, 12 missions on the, or 12 uh, instruments on the orbiter and we want to get get everything very precisely planned, um, we, and, and uploaded in time to the spacecraft, we would plan out sequences Uh, you know, like a couple months' worth of operations and upload them to the spacecraft well ahead of time. So even though we were always very busy planning out observations, when it would actually execute on board, uh, you know, would be a good couple months later. And sometimes I'd find myself going, what what are we planning on doing there? I can't remember. (laughs) But, um, But then, you know, when the images come down and the rest of the data come down, you know, it's just like wow that that turned out really good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's got to be worth the wait, right? I mean, <laughs> oh yes, oh yeah. <laughs> I imagine that some some things wouldn't be worth that, but those definitely were. Well, so, what happens if like halfway through the sequence something messes up? I mean,
2: well, you know take... what? I mean, that almost never happened on Cassini. You know, when when something messes up, uh, we call it the spacecraft safes, and it like says. Mm-hmm me, I, you know, does not compute and I have to just (laughs) stop and do nothing and try to reconnoiter. And, uh, I think that happened like twice on Cassini in the whole mission.
0: In the whole thing? Yes. My goodness. Yes.
2: (laughs) Um, it was really great. And I, and I, I chalked that up to a lot of, uh, testing, you know, we would run these sequences and test them and test them and test them. And, um, and then, um, and they would, they would execute. Pretty fine. I actually can't even remember exactly what happened with the, with the you know, small handful of safing incidents that we had. That's um, impressive. But it was it really ended up. I mean that spacecraft team was really good.
1: Oh, and I imagine that, uh, the you know you're focusing on doing the planetary science that there's still a pretty deep level of understanding of all the orbital mechanics and you oh, know the right. engineering that background that right. you've got and everything that has to go in to make this work
2: right so uh, so we had this whole navigation team of you know experts just pl- planning out the tour so initially we had a four-year tour of saturn planned out of like 74 orbits of the planet and the navigation team would have to take all of the science desires and requirements of all the scientists um, and work those into the to that four-year tour. So for instance, the scientists would say, we've got to have 20 flybys of Titan and they've got to cover, you know, such and such latitudes and such and such altitudes. And we also need to have three flybys of Enceladus, and we need them to be at such and such altitude. And then let's also do a Dione flyby and a Rhea flyby and a Helene flyby and a Hyperion flyby. And also, let's change the orbit so that the direction to the sun is, you know, orthogonal. And let's come up out of the equatorial plane on some of the orbits so we're more inclined and that way we can look down on the polar regions of the planet and look down on the rings and uh, we can get a different um, kind of feel of the whole magnetospheric environment. Um, So a lot of really uh, often conflicting science requirements were thrown into the mix, and the navigation team went off and designed a tour that met all of those. Um, Yeah, and it was really amazing. And then, of course, we got extended missions. So after the first four years, uh, we got a two-year extension, and then we got another, let's see, it must have been seven years extension for the final chunk of the mission. And uh, again, we had more and more requirements and things that we wanted to do. And they went off and designed tours. And I remember just going through all sorts of, you know, tour options. They would give us tour after tour option to look at. And we had to look at it and say, do we like this? What do we like about this one? What don't we like about that one? And then we'd all, you know, vote and come up with which was the best one. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I actually kind of forgot about that until right now. That was quite the... Trial. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't even
0: imagine. It's hard to find like three people who want to go to the same place for lunch. Like I, can't I know.
2: <laughs> wow. But really fun. But you're right. So the navigation part of things was a really important part of Cassini, um, and that really was worked out, you know, just extremely well.
0: It's it's interesting to talk to people who you know, I've worked on these big missions and to understand the importance of the organizational aspect of it, Mm -hmm. of, you know, actually just getting people in that room and making a decision and moving forward and how there are people that are just in charge of that, you know, and that's probably the most important job is what I've come away with after talking (laughs) to everybody.
2: Oh yeah, because especially on a big mission like Cassini, a big flagship mission, um, You know, you've got all of these competing interests. You know, we had a working group just for Titan, and then a working group just for the rest of the moons, and then one for Saturn, and one for the rings, and one for the magnetospheric environment. And so when we were coming up with tours, um, you know, each of those working groups would you know, make up a list of what they wanted to do in the next four years or whatever. And, um, and like I said, they were, they were often at odds with each other. And so the navigation group had to come back and try to make everybody happy, or at least, you know, equally unhappy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but of course we all ended up being quite happy with how everything turned out.
1: So, going back to, i guess to some more of the planetary science side yeah. of things and i'm sure we'll wrap back uh into what we got from the mission but what do we know about saturn in terms of its formation and all of the satellites
2: well um one thing that really you know the whole formation of saturn we know you know formed at the beginning of the solar system um one thing that has come out of cassini is uh a bit of a dispute, still, about the formation of the moons, the main moons, uh, Kind of, there's Titan, um, but then there's a, several medium-sized moons and lots of really small moons, and the um, formation of those medium-sized moons is a bit under debate still, when they might have formed and how young they are. But one thing that is really important and interesting that has come out of Cassini is about the age of the rings. And that's always been under debate um, because there was a whole group of people who thought, well, the the rings are really old and they've been there since, you know, for four and a half billion years since Saturn's been there. Um, But there were a couple of lines of evidence from Cassini that told us that that's almost certainly not the case. And uh, the first one was dust measurements. So we had this... uh, need dust cosmic dust analyzer CDA on board and um, they they found that you know the amount of dust that's coming into the Saturn system is too much for Saturn's rings to maintain such a high albedo over many billions of years um so, in other words, the, the rings are very bright, and that's one of the things that makes Saturn so unique. Um, people often say, well, why does Saturn have rings and none of the other planets have rings? And, of course, the other, planet, the other giant planets have rings, too, but Saturns are just right. really bright and fabulous. And that's probably because they're young. Because if they, had, if they were older, they probably would have accumulated a lot of uh, micrometeoroid-related uh, dust, and they would have gotten darker with time. And we know that, in fact, there is enough uh, interplanetary dust, micrometeoroidal dust coming into the Saturn system that the ring should have kind of accumulated some of that and gotten darker over time. Um, and they haven't. They're bright.
0: So we haven't seen
2: darkening. We haven't seen darkening, right. Oh, wow. But the other thing is, is that, you know, uh, in Saturn's, or sorry, in Cassini's final orbits... Well, what we would do is, you know, every time we did a Saturn orbit, we could um, we could sense the mass of the planet and the rings just by understanding the, um, the gravitational pull on the spacecraft every time it got close to Saturn. And on most orbits, almost all of the Cassini orbits, of course, we were orbiting and our closest approach to Saturn would be somewhere well outside the main rings. But on those final 22 orbits, uh, the grand finale orbits, um, in 2017, we did this fancy thing where we went in between the top of the atmosphere and the inside of the rings. And kind of uh, pretty highly inclined, and we did this series of orbits that are kind of like uh, the Juno spacecraft is doing. And so what that allowed us to do was to subtract off the gravitational influence of the rings themselves And all that was perturbing the spacecraft uh, was the planet itself. And so that allowed us to kind of uh, isolate the mass of the rings. And by getting at the mass of the rings, that tells us something about the age, because the thinking is, is that if they are quite massive, then they are probably pretty old. In other words, they, they erode over time because they're all, all those uh, ring particles are crashing into each other and, um, and eroding, and if they are uh, very massive, um, they could be quite old because they would be able to withstand that, the aging process, the erosional process. Um, but it turns out that the mass of the rings is pretty low and that tells us that they're probably pretty young. Now we know that the mass of the rings um, is about comparable to about 40% of the mass of the moon Mimas. And Mimas is one of those medium-sized moons that orbits about uh, three Saturn radii out. And um, it's about 40% of the mass of Mimas, which is low enough that it tells us that those rings are probably only on the order of about 200 million years old.
1: Wow. Oh, wow. So we're in, we're in geologic time there. Yeah. Yeah, uh. we're
2: getting there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is, wow, that's nothing. I mean.
2: Yeah. And uh, so then, of course, you know, are we lucky? Maybe we're just lucky that we happen to be here observing <laughs> Saturn when it has this ring. But But maybe... This is sort of a transitional thing, and it uh, has a ring for a while, and then the ring goes away, and then it gets another one when whatever process it is, probably the breakup of some, you know, interloper comes in and forms (laughs) a big ring system. So it's pretty neat.
0: Is that one of the thoughts of how they formed then? Is that stuff getting captured and smashed?
2: yes. uh maybe a moon uh maybe some uh interloper that came in too close Hmm.
1: so what do we know about the makeup of the rings then
2: they're mostly water ice okay and again that's that's why they're so bright um we do see compositional variations and color variations um if you if you look carefully and with the right instrumentation um and we can see that there's also kind of a They're actually slightly reddish, Uh, not really to our eye, but um, they are technically a little bit reddish. And that tells us, because pure water ice is just white, um, it tells us that there's some sort of contaminant in the rings and it varies in abundance depending on where you look in the rings, Um, but some sort of contaminant that's slightly reddish. And it's been a big debate. Well, what is this reddish absorber? And um, I was on a paper where we, we argued that the reddish contaminant is mostly some sort of organic um and this would this would make sense uh considering um that there's organic uh, material in uh meteorites we know and um it, it's a, a fairly common um constituent in potential impactors
0: well all, all the could, moons too right they've got a bunch of organics as well
2: well, definitely Enceladus does, uh-huh. and we could, we could talk about that later, because <laughs> that's a neat story, too. But, um, but then the, the other question was, well, maybe it's um, some sort of iron, like super fine grain iron that uh, would be present just in small amounts enough to make it reddish. And we know, you know, iron uh, on Mars and, you know, even on Earth, it can cause kind of a reddish tint to things. Um, I think the question there is, well, gosh, generally you'd think, well, you've got to have some sort of silicate material then um, to break up and produce super fine grain iron. And um, whether there's enough of that in the Saturn system to make its way into the rings or not um, is not quite understood yet. Uh, Maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe there's some organics and some um, fine grain iron.
0: Or I'm a paleomagnetist, so when we always just blame it on organics making iron, so maybe that's it too.
2: (laughs) Oh. (laughs) I don't think anybody suggested that yet. (laughs) Oh,
0: it's on the record now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So is there any evidence for, uh, you know, we've got water ice there. Is there any evidence that some of these organics in the water ice have made gas clathrates?
2: Um, Some people have talked about that, yes. Not in the rings, I don't think, but on on some of the moons. And I know that we've talked about that on Jupiter's moons, or at least some of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But whether... I think that there has been some evidence for clathrates on some of Saturn's moons, too. But what you've got there... In the Jovian system, the real thing that's going on is um, that um, radiation environment. That's super heavy duty at Jupiter. And those moons of Jupiter just get pounded by charged particles all the time. And in the Saturn environment, you've got that a little bit, but the radiation environment isn't nearly as intense as it is at Jupiter. But what you do have is the E-ring. At Saturn, and this is not one of the main rings. It's it's a very broad and diffuse ring that you barely can see with your naked eye. Um, There's such fine uh, water ice grains that uh, you really can mostly see them when they're when it's backlit, um, and it extends pretty much from the main rings all the way out to Titan, at about 15 RS Saturn yeah. radii. And um, so it's very broad, and the source of it is Enceladus, and Enceladus is, uh, cryovolcanic activity spewing water out into the system. But it forms this broad E-ring of fine e- um, water ice grains, and all the rest of the moons are orbiting Saturn within that E-ring. And so what we see on their surfaces is largely E-ring grains, so um, it's... Enceladus plume material, and, you know, Enceladus, I should jump back because Enceladus, I mentioned it's cryovolcanically active, and it's got this plume at the South Pole, and so stuff from inside of Enceladus is making its way through this plume out into the Saturn system and onto the surfaces of the other moons. Um... So, whether or not clathrates are formed through that process is um, not clear, but definitely we see the effect of Enceladus and the e ring on on the system from you know the e rings the main rings out out to titan okay
0: that's a lot of internal water on Enceladus. <laughs>
2: yeah it is it is and um Enceladus loses a lot of uh water vapor and a lot of water ice grains through these uh this plume activity that's just evidently constant and it's been constant through the Cassini mission and um you know for who knows how long before that um but um but we know that you know, I talked about erosion of the main ring grains, the E-ring grains will erode over time as well. And so we know that as long as the E-ring grain is there, that um, the the plume must be active, the Enceladus plume must be active because that E-ring won't last very long. It'll just kind of peter out through erosional processes.
0: So is Enceladus one of those places that we definitely want to target when we're looking for you know, extraterrestrial life and all that?
2: Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and the reason <laughs> is, is because along, I mentioned water vapor and water ice okay. grains coming out, but, but along with that is uh, trace amounts of organics. Okay. And we know that because we flew through the plume with Cassini multiple times, and the in situ instruments like the ion and neutral mass spectrometer and the dust instrument, they sampled that plume material directly, and they could see, see and smell and feel what was in that what was in that plume and what's coming out from that subsurface ocean. And sure enough, there's organics in there, and we also know that um, you know it's got to be a liquid ocean under the icy shell. At Enceladus and and that means that there's some sort of energy so a heat source that is keeping that um, water liquid mm-hmm. and um, and those are our main ingredients for life liquid water and an energy source and nutrients organic stuff and um, so it's a very promising place to look for some sort of life. I mean, definitely, you know, it would have to be on the cellular level or bug level. You know, maybe bugs, right. <laughs> maybe fishies. Who knows? But <laughs> <laughs>
0: Beautiful. I want some. In- but but the other thing. <laughs>
2: The other thing, of course, about Enceladus is that it's spewing its ocean material right out at us. So it makes it easy for us to grab. We don't have to go there and drill down through the ice to get at the ocean. Um, Now, certainly, if there's any life in the ocean that's getting spewed out... It's not going to be alive anymore by the time it gets out to space. <laughs> but at least maybe you could see evidence of little dead bugs or something. <laughs> Floating around.
0: Um, now, these these jets are all different sizes, right? But what are we talking about in terms of scale?
2: Well, let's see. That's a good question. So along at the south pole of Enceladus, Enceladus is only 500 meters in diameter. Mm-hmm. And um, there are these four giant uh, fissures in the surface um let's see and all along those fissures we know that they're they're emanating heat um it's very cold but um they're relatively hot and this is the uh, subsurface heat coming through that ice and al- along all the fissures are these jets coming out um and kind of along with the all the material that's coming out through the jets, there's kind of a background level of material that's coming out too. Um, but the jets are where uh, are high speed, and that's where a lot of the material comes out and makes it out into the E ring. A lot of the um, other material that comes out, heavier stuff that isn't at high speed, is just going to fall back onto the surface. So. Uh, another thing that we know about the ocean is that it is salty. There's, we know that some of those grains that um, are coming out in the jets are salty, again from CDA, and some of those make it out into the E-ring. A lot of the larger, saltier grains fall back to the surface, but some of the smaller ones that are um, within the jets can can um, go out past the gravitational you know, pole of Enceladus and make it out into the E-ring.
1: So Enceladus is admittedly one of the, the more interesting and wild moons out there. Uh, but what are some of the other uh, moons of Saturn that are particularly interesting for our study?
2: Well, okay, they're all interesting. That's the great thing. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on and on, actually. But, um because, you know, you think about, oh, Saturn, you know, almost at the beginning of the mission, I would kind of get them all mixed up. I'm like, I have, you know, Jupiter, it was work to, easy to work on because there was only four main moons to worry about. But I'm like, how do I get all these right in my head? And then, of course, I got very used to it very quickly. But, um, you know, Mimas is interesting because it's super battered looking and, you um, and it's got this weird, you know, Pac Man like feature on the surface where it's got this thermal anomaly, and that's probably because of its um, the radiation environment where it orbits um, that change the um, thermal uh, the thermal characteristics of uh, one of the parts of the surface. So that's interesting. Um, one of my favorites, though, of course, is Big Titan. Um, right. And I know you guys have talked about Titan before, but it is so interesting on so many levels. Um, and one reason that I really like it is because I, I think it's the most Earth place, Earth-like place in the solar system. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people compare it to early Earth because of its nitrogen-rich atmosphere. And that's true, but I think that, um, you know, that atmosphere is so unique and you know, for a rocky it's icy but basically rocky world to have such a thick atmosphere, it's absolutely unique in the solar system. The the only, you know, kind of comparable place would be Venus, but of course that's like way too thick of an atmosphere to even be <laughs> yeah. thinking about. And plus right. it's too hot there. Now it's cold at Titan, but um but I think that can be gotten around. But the good thing about the um thick atmosphere Um, At Titan is that in terms of future missions If we want to go there if we want to go there with uh, future spacecraft or even if humans in the future want to go to Titan um, That would be a good place to go because they could uh, exist on the surface and would not be exposed to the harsh uh, radiation environment that they would be exposed to anywhere else in the solar system including Mars Right. So that to me makes it a very special place, not to mention all the hydrocarbons that are present and that could be used um, as an energy source and the wind that could be used and even the uh, liquids on the surface. So I think, I think that in terms of you know, creating a sustainable settlement of some sort, whether it's robotic or human, Titan is, has really offers a lot of options.
0: We talked to Mike Malaska about this, and we we got off on just talking about the atmosphere and how easy it is to fly there. So they're just right. The variability of you know drones or whatever you could have to investigate Titan just seemed endless because of this fantastic you know product of its atmosphere.
2: Oh yeah, it yeah, it's really great because you could fly, you could fly drones, you could fly you know helicopters. and you could harness the energy produced by the wind. We we did some calculations where we figured, well, right now we know that the wind speeds uh, at the surface are pretty low. And we know that because um, on the lakes at the at the polar regions, we don't see very much wave activity. But on the other hand, we do see these dunes at the lower latitudes or the mid-latitudes. So uh, perhaps there's episodic higher wind um, speeds at the surface, but we also know from the Huygens probe uh, that went down through the atmosphere-making measurements and then settled on the surface that wind speeds are significantly higher up at higher altitudes. So potentially if you wanted to um, tap into energy from wind, you could do that using, um, you know, air stations that are uh, maybe tethered to the surface and they're just aloft uh, in the atmosphere. Some sort of a um, turbine, you know, up at 40 kilometers or something, or maybe not even that high. Wow.
1: So it sounds like this is one of those things that uh, interests you a lot is where we could potentially uh, travel and set up Uh, colonies. And in fact, you wrote a book about that, right?
2: I did. I co-wrote a book called Beyond Earth, um, Our Path to a New Home in the Planets. And we were sort of challenged with the idea of um, where in the solar system should humans set up a settlement. Um, And we kind of, we wanted to make it as realistic of a book as possible. We didn't want to make it like sci-fi, if at all possible. And we thought about it, and we thought, you know what, Mars is, I know a lot of people like Mars, but um, in terms of humans going there for the long term, um, it's it's not that great because of the radiation environment, unless you go and live underground, which I don't think sounds that attractive. Um. <laughs> I'm a geologist. It sounds okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's neat geology on Titan, too. That's yeah, true. Mm-hmm. That is true.
0: <laughs> So is that, is that where we'd go? You think Titan's a better
2: Titan, idea? Titan, yes. Titan's a better idea than anywhere else in the solar system. The main challenge is, of course, the, I mentioned the cold. Um, I, I, again, I think you could, re- you could address a lot of those issues. Um, you can make heat uh, using some of the you know, energy-producing options that we talked about um, pretty easily. Like on the moon or actually different from the moon or Mars, you would not have to wear a pressure suit because you've got nice atmospheric pressure uh, right there on the surface. You, you just need to wear clothing to keep you warm and you'd need to wear a respirator because there's no oxygen in the atmosphere. So but you could make oxygen easily because there's plenty of water ice uh, available. I mean, thank so, God there's no
0: oxygen in the atmosphere. Couldn't you just basically light the whole planet on fire? I know, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah.
2: so you would actually need to be a little bit cautious about that. <laughs>
0: all
1: this energy. Um, Oops, Okay. <laughs> and we've had several folks on the show that have uh, written books and each has a little bit different experience with that. Uh, So I'd like to derail just uh, a little bit of the conversation here into what was your book writing experience like?
2: Well, it was really, it was really interesting. Um, uh, I partnered with a real life author (laughs) named Charles (laughs) Woolforth. So it was, it was definitely a team effort. Uh, but most of the real, actual, you know, writing was done by Charles, because that's his forte. And, um, but we would talk on Skype all the time um, and collaborate on what we wanted to cover in this chapter. And, you know, I would go off and do a lot of research and talk to people I know who, you, who were doing such and such and set up interviews with experts in whatever fields we wanted to uh, go into in that chapter And uh, we did a couple of trips. Uh, We went to Johnson Space Center and interviewed some people there. And we went to SpaceX and JPL and interviewed people there. Um, So we talked a lot about, um, you know, how NASA does things, how commercial businesses do things and how they're different and how they could potentially really be uh, good in working together and actually getting us out of low Earth orbit because uh, it's hard to do, it's expensive, and and so I think you know all of the innovation that the commercial companies are doing is really useful at this point. Um, but there's a lot of know-how also um, at NASA that we need to also sort of harness um, and keep going. We don't want to lose that. Um, so anyway so it was a collaborative effort in writing the book it was really interesting Um, and and fun and you know just the experience of publishing it and doing a book tour and i i really like um you know sharing the concept of the book with the public because i think there's so many people out there who are really interested in space travel and in titan and so sharing that with the public is really important and I like doing that. I like all the interest that people show, and I'm, I'm glad to talk to them.
1: And this is a, a relatively recent publication. So it was the end of last year, the end of 2017. Uh, uh, it came what-
2: out at the end of 2016, I think. Yes. So about a year and a half ago it came out.
1: Okay, so it's a year and a half. Is that a, enough time that you're interested in working on a, another book project? Now?
2: <laughs> well, I've kind of been thinking about it. Um, I I can't say I've gotten too far on things, but I do have a few ideas in the hopper.
1: Nice. Oh, great, we will uh, we'll look forward to
2: that. <laughs> I'm, lo- I'm looking
0: forward to the sci-fi uh, follow-up to that as you know, when we actually live there. So. <laughs> oh, I
2: know. Well, there's so much you could do with that, too. Oh, exactly. Yeah. No one
0: would want to read mine. I just want to sit there and talk about, you know, some weird organic lake avulsing with its rivers, but (laughs) because that just blows my mind, the kind of geologic processes that are happening on Titan. So,
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we really need to send many more missions back to Titan because it's such a fascinating place and we really need to learn a lot more about what's going on there. Um, And changing, you know, we saw seasonal changes on Titan by being in the Saturn system for 13 years. So it's just an absolutely fascinating place. We can't wait to go back.
1: And so one question that we've been also asking uh, everybody that comes on this series, I I think I know the answer to the first part. uh, (laughs) But but I'm not so sure on the, the second part. Is if you could travel anywhere in the Saturn system and live there for a month, what would you do?
2: Oh, right. So what would I do? Well, so you know where it would be. It would be Titan. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And the reason is because a month is a long time to be exposed to radiation. So I don't want to do that. I want to live on Titan where it's safe. (laughs) Um, And what I would do is I would have already sent a bunch of robots out there to set up a little um, um, sort of habitat for me. You know, they could just smartly build it, make it all nice and heated. And the main thing I would do would be fly around because that's what, what I can't wait to do on Titan is just fly, you know, under the strength of my own arms. And at the low gravity, you could just fly. And maybe I would uh, come prepared with some wings that I could strap onto my arms. So I in case I get a little bit lazy, that would help out. <laughs> uh, but I just think that would be a ball. Uh-huh. So that's what I would do for an entire month, just fly around.
0: I do love it. That's, am- that's amazing. There's no, like, specific science mission. It's like, yeah, duh. <laughs> float around
2: a month. <laughs> well, I'm sure that, yeah, I'm sh- obviously there's a lot of science to be done. But um, the other thing that I didn't talk about, though, that we should mention, though, is um, that it takes a long time to get out there and so that's the main thing even though i like titan as a human destination one day um it takes too long to get out there right now so to me that's kind of one of the main hurdles is um is is finding some propulsion um mechanism to to get out there faster
1: oh yeah because to get out there in a in a to get out there in a reasonable time span you've got to have a massive delta v to stop right
2: <laughs> well that yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so <laughs> um so you know there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges with get getting out there and getting you know humans out there safely and everything in a reasonable so amount of time
1: how long did it take cassini to get there seven years that is quite a while
2: it is quite a while <laughs> cassini it was launched in 97, but it did this uh, inner solar system gravitational transfer tour so that it could, it did a Venus flyby and I think a couple Earth flybys and in order to get enough energy to swing out there. Um, So potentially uh, you wouldn't need to do that and maybe shave um, a year or two off, but still it's too long to get out there. So you right. need something, I think, that can provide, like, constant acceleration. So you would constantly accelerate out to the halfway point and then constantly decelerate. So you wouldn't have that massive delta V problem when you arrive. And you can just right. smoothly settle onto the surface. No problem.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one exit you don't want to miss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh,
1: so... If there are some folks listening that think they might want to have a career in planetary science or space science, do you have some advice that you would give them?
2: Yes, um, I would. Well, depending on how old they are and everything, I think, you know, everybody always says, I think, you know, study your math and science in high school. And and I definitely think that's a good idea. Um, I. I think it's a good idea to, um, you know, like I said, I kind of bumbled my way along a little bit and finally found it. Um, and th- there's lots of things to do in planetary science that aren't necessarily, you know, planetary geology. You know, there's, uh, there's people doing more space physics. Um, there's, there's people doing, um, you know, journalism. There's people doing, you know, art related stuff. Um, you know, graphic arts or different kind of art. Um, and so I think that there's ways to sort of tailor your planetary science um, career to your own uh, likes and, and make it kind of your own. There's definitely a lot to do in planetary science, a lot of different sort of subfields. And so um, a lot of different uh, ways to, to come at it. Uh, whether it 's through kind of straight geology or or more space physics or chemistry or astrobiology um, there's a lot of uh, ways to come at it and The more we you know send missions and learn about these worlds, the more uh, we realize that we need more expertise in different areas and so um, if anybody out there is thinking of you know getting into the planetary science field, I think that's a wonderful idea and and we need you because there's so much data (laughs) and there's so many good places to go so hopefully we'll be still doing a lot more missions and um and so we need people to um you know plan the missions and build the instruments and analyze the data
1: all right uh is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't covered
2: Gosh, not that's coming to me right now. I just think that, you know, if anybody out there is listening and wants to learn more about the Cassini mission, they can go to saturn.jpl.nasa.gov and just get lost looking at all these gorgeous <laughs> images. <laughs> and there's a lot of neat information on there too about the mission. I can't I can't speak highly enough of of the mission team and uh, the science team and the spacecraft team. It was really just a wonderful experience. And really, I feel really fortunate to have worked on it. And luckily, hopefully, we'll get to spend the next few decades uh, working my way through uh, some of the data on, on those moons. Um, and so, um, and I think a lot of um, you know PhD theses will come out of Cassini data too. So it's really been fabulous.
1: Oh, great. And if folks want to keep up with your research, how can you be found on the Internet?
2: Oh, I am on Facebook, and I post there from time to time. <laughs> okay. And so they can find me on Facebook, Amanda Hendricks, and um, also on on Twitter, too. Um, I think they can find me through Amanda Hendricks on Twitter, Um so, and, yeah, so I, I um, am looking forward to uh, hearing from people, and if people have follow-up questions, they're always welcome to email me or contact me through um, any medium, and I can hopefully try to address people's uh, questions and, and um, engage in conversations.
0: Well, that's a great. I mean, it's certainly been a pleasure talking to you about the actual rocks that are hanging out around Saturn and um, your career path and working on Cassini. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really been fun.
1: Well, Shannon, I think we know uh, some large data sets that I need to go work on now and help <laughs> catalog.
0: <laughs> Man, not only that, but gosh, just the image processing. That's what's uh, so it's really excited. These last, you know, three... Shows that we've talked so much about all the different image processing that's gone on. You know, you're looking at that toppler, the atmosphere, and all the differences that you could see in each flyby. Yeah, I want to learn how to do that now.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So now moving on to something entirely different. It's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday! Yay!
0: So this, this is my last outstanding question is, why do old men have big ears?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so why do old men have big ears? By James Heathcote.
0: Uh, it's so fantastic, man. These are, these are so good. So he actually won an Ig Nobel for this.
1: <laughs> and I thought this was brilliant. So the question is, somebody made a casual comment that said, why do old men have big ears? And some people in their little lunch group that they were discussing this with said, yeah, yeah, they do. Some people said, I don't know what you're talking about. So as any good group of uh, medical professionals would do, they said, let's ask our patients if we can measure their ears.
0: (laughs) I love this. And so that's what they went out and did, right? And I was, (laughs) I will say, I'm a little affronted because they asked Patients over
1: thirty. They did.
0: <laughs> that made me a little sad. I know it's probably not making you too sad, but you're gonna get there very soon. Uh, it's, it's. I'm right on the line of you being are. sad. <laughs> this is crap, anyway. But patients, <laughs> patients thirty and over. <laughs> <laughs> of both sexes in any racial group. And I love this because I said, no patients refuse to participate. And all the researchers were surprised by how interested and amused patients were by the project.
1: <laughs> well, when you think about it, you tell somebody, I want to measure your years because you notice how old guys have big ears, and they're all going to go, yeah.
0: Exactly. I would, I totally did. I was like, yeah, that is so true. And I love it because he has, these, he has pictures of like James Garner and Salvador Dali on here. <laughs> In the figure, showing that very clearly, these these guys have some figures.
1: Well, and the uh, the subtext to that, or the caption to that set of figures is some have them and some don't.
0: Yeah, that's true. I will say, I'm guessing that James Garner's are not, not the biggest, but Salvador Dalis are impressive. <laughs> yes. Uh, so um. I,
1: what was really interesting to me about this was I was describing this paper to my wife uh, when we were driving home today, and... She goes well. It's because your ears don't stop growing.
0: Yeah, I've, mm-hmm. yeah,
1: I had never heard that.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's. So, I, I mean, I had heard that too. Um, and they they actually don't even talk about that being a thing that was said out loud. But it it's real interesting, and I've noticed it before. And obviously they did too. And so what they did, <laughs> I loved it. They just used a clear ruler and they measured. The length of the left external ear from the top to the lowest part with a transparent ruler. And the results, together with the patient's age, was recorded. And that's it.
1: And <laughs> when they plot this, lo and behold, you get a trend that would send most geophysics and geology papers running for their lives. <laughs> it's pretty significant.
0: It is. It's so crazy. <laughs> and so it's great. It's really the page, it, they're the papers. A page long, because there's, well, it's not even a page long, because there's not even anything else to say, except that, yes, old people have big ears.
1: <laughs> and when you fit the trend line, it turns out that on average, your ears get longer by about 0. 0.22 millimeters per year.
0: That's crazy. That's a lot. It is. hmm. Yeah. It's very interesting. And so they said, you know, that they didn't answer that question, that, um, why ears get bigger when the rest of the body stops growing. We don't know. They just wanted to make sure that that's a true thing because so many people say it. So there you go.
1: So my question is, in addition to marking your kid's height on the wall, <laughs> should you also be marking their ear size? <laughs> uh,
0: that's way too much work.
1: <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm curious. Uh, my advisor kept very careful track, of his kid's height. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, you see this sort of uh, exponential increase in the very beginning, and then it goes kind of log. I'm wondering if they went over 30 because that's the linear part. If you look at the lower end of the graph, it looks sort of like a a really rapidly increasing nonlinear thing.
0: Oh, yeah. That is interesting.
1: So I wonder if that's when you, you know, grow into your ears. Oh, then (laughs) And then they start...
0: So your ear to head ratio right now is just going to go downhill. <laughs> uh, yes, that
1: seems to be the story of ear to head ratio and basically everything
0: else. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if you would like to send in measurements of your ear size and age, we uh, we can compile a graph of ear size for our listeners. <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, Shannon, where can they send that information?
0: <laughs> Please don't send us your, your size. <laughs> <laughs> show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. Together, we're at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin, and John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, we're, I'm sure we'll be talking about this on the Slack chat room. We're on the Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. Clearly, we're doing very important things here. <laughs> on don't panic geo (laughs) and if you'd like to help support us in these really great interviews that we're doing um don't panic or you can find us on patreon patreon.com slash don't panic geo
1: and until next week remember don't panic
0: it's not an exact science unless it's your (laughs) that's what i was gonna say (laughs) then it's very exact with a very good r squared value
1: exactly